Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Now, have you ever been reading a book and it has nothing to do with the work you do with data or with graphs or anything you're working on? And yet in the back of your head, you're thinking to yourself, this book completely applies to the work that I'm doing. And that is how I felt when I read The Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair. Okay, so I heard about this book when Cassia did an interview on the 99% Invisible podcast. And as I'm listening to the episode, I'm thinking to myself, I have to buy this book. And so I bought it literally while I'm listening to the episode, just devoured the book. It was so great. And then invited her to come on the show because I wanted to learn more about, about the work that she's doing. And the book itself goes through a whole bunch of different colors, the origins of the colors, where they came from in terms of how the dyes were made, um, what type of people or classes of people were, were using those colors and, and where those colors were being used uh, in different parts of the world. It's just a fascinating tour through color history. And as I'm reading, of course, I'm thinking about the colors that I use in my data visualization work and my slides. And of course, I'm thinking about how we take some color palettes and we sort of apply them and, and we see them and we think that they're just, you know, that's the norm. For example, uh, pink for women, blue for men. Did you know that that's a fairly recent phenomenon? That's not always the way colors were ascribed to men and women. So we talk about uh, that in this episode. We talk about uh, how she looks at color throughout the day. And we also talk about her new book, The Golden Thread, which is already out in the UK, but it's not here in the States. So I'm just biding my time and waiting for that book. So it's a really fun uh, conversation I got to have. This is one of those times where um, I really enjoy being a podcaster because I can reach out to someone who's written a book that's really not in data visualization and see if they want to come on the show and chat. And, and fortunately, she was really willing to do so. And it's just a really fun, great conversation. So I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the Policy Viz podcast with Cassia St. Clair, uh, the, the author of the book, The Secret Lies of Color, and the new book, The Golden Thread. Cassia, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you on. I'm in love with this book, by the way. I heard the interview with you on 99% Invisible and listening to it, like five minutes in, I'm opening up my Amazon app to buy the book. So I'm very excited to talk to you. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And, and thank you for your kind words um, about the book. It's, it's really funny to me because I've been interested in colour for a very long time. I'm, um, I studied history at university and, and specifically um, 18th century women's history and even more specifically what women wore to masquerade balls in London during the 18th century. And that's kind of how I fell in love with colour academically because I was reading about all these interesting shades um, that women were mentioning in their letters and diaries. And I realised that the language around colour had completely changed um, in the intervening centuries. And this was just fascinating to me. So I went away and kind of went down all these weird little rabbit holes of research um, to look at how these colours had changed and what they were called now and and how they'd been made at the time and and where you know where we get them now mm -hmm. and I, I really was kind of unsure as to whether anyone else was going to find this interesting you know it's kind of a very niche little interest obsession um of <laughs> right. mine right. and I pitched it as a column um 
to several magazines here in the UK and eventually got picked up um, by a magazine called Elle Decoration. And then after a couple of years, it looked like the column was going to be axed. And I was, you know, just outraged kind of on the on behalf of the idea. I was just, I wasn't ready to um, to say goodbye to it. And I thought there were so many other great shades that I wanted to research and to tell their stories. And so I pitched the idea as a book and found a, a publisher um, who was kind of willing to go down this rabbit hole with me. But, you know, mm. it's funny now because I think in the last few years, there's been a real um, recognition of the fact that colour is, is actually very mainstream. But when I first started writing about it, you know, there was this idea that it was very a very niche topic and no one would really be interested at all. Right. Can you give me a, a sense of when you were doing your research, were you reading these letters and also seeing pictures or drawings that people were wearing? Or was it literally the language where the words didn't resemble what you would sort of think of when someone talked about the colour dress that they were wearing? Sure. So it kind of started with letters, diaries and written accounts. And people would be discussing, you know, outfits that they had worn or that they were planning to wear or outfits that friends or rivals had worn to masquerade balls. (laughs) And um, quite often the colours that they were describing first of all, were very unfamiliar. They're not the the colours that we would think of now as being particularly fashionable. Mm. And sometimes they were so unfamiliar that I wouldn't have any idea what they looked like at all. And that would mean that I would have to go away and try and find a visual reference. Uh, Now, sometimes you get lucky and you, you know, can find an account of a a woman or a man who's sitting down for a a portrait, you know, sitting down to have their portrait painted. And they say, well, you know, I was sitting down and with um, Mr. Reynolds and he was painting my portrait and I was wearing my best hair brown police. And then if you're really lucky, the portrait still exists and you can go Mm. and have kind of a visual reference. But very often that doesn't exist. Um, You don't know exactly what these colours might have looked like. And even if you do have a visual reference you know has that color changed in the intervening centuries you know a lot of paint pigments do alter over time and so you just don't really get that sense uh, of exactly what a color might have looked like and because we're not embedded in that culture of fashionable color you know there's a lot of what we perceive as color is kind of um, culturally imbued, we think of colours as being fashionable or um, or unfashionable. And, you know, once you've uh, a certain amount of time has elapsed, it's very hard to see precisely what contemporaries were seeing. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the physical construction of the book. Well, maybe I'll let you describe the construction of the book, you know, how you thought about designing it, because it has a, a, a unique design to it. Yeah, so... Um, when I was pitching the book to, um, first of all, my agent and then to publishers, I had quite a clear idea in my head of what I wanted the book to look like. I imagined that it would have colour, you know, the, the relevant colour that I was talking about on a specific page running down the outside. And I sort of imagined it would be a bit like a, an address book where, you know, you sort of have cutaway sections for A, B, C, D, and you'd see the colours kind of mm-hmm. running down the edge right. um, of the page. 
that precise construction ended up just being ludicrously expensive and no publisher was willing <laughs> to take it on. Uh, but, you know, that you still have these kind of columns of colour um, that were uh, included in the final design. Um, but what was quite funny about this in, in some ways is that, you know, a lot of what I say in the book is that colours are cultural creations and it's very hard to pin down one precise shade that is universally agreed upon as the ultramarine or the puce. And yet for the design of the book, I had to settle on one ultramarine or one puce because that was the design of the book. It had to have these sections of colour running down the outside. So I I sort of found myself undermining my own argument um, in the design, (laughs) which was a bit silly. Um, But it also took ages. You know, there were real arguments um, and discussions about, you know, whether this was the perfect magenta or whether that was or, you know, it was it, it got quite heated. I bet, I bet, like the anxiety level you must have felt at the oh. end of putting for these these final touches must have been. Yeah, yeah. I, I had, um, I, I literally had sleepless nights um, about I'm some sure, of the sure. some of the colors. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to get letters from designers just you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> getting so angry with me because I've chosen this particular shade. Right, this particular shade, right? Um, so for each of the colors that you go through, most if not. Well, many, I'd say, if not all of them, have like a little story attached to them. You know, there's an individual who did this or, or did that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you came across these stories and how that sort of helped pull the entire project together? Sure. So I kind of um, thought about each color a little bit like um, a person. And I thought of the stories that would be attached to them as a little bit like character sketches. And some of them have got very long, involved histories that you can trace back, you know, to antiquity or or even further back. And then some of them are, you know, have been fashionable for maybe only a few years and then have completely disappeared. But I sort of wanted, in a way, to give them equal hearing and to tell their story as kind of, you know, the perfect introduction, I guess. Um, And so... That is, for me, about writing a really compelling account that can draw the reader in whether or not they like the colour. And actually, it's quite funny. Some of my favourite stories in the book are not attached to colours that I personally love the look of. Um, But nevertheless, the story kind of stands alone. And so doing this, I would quite often fasten on a particular moment or a particular um, image or an object and kind of try and really vividly describe that um, so that the reader is is right there and has really got kind of a a context. And Mm. so it's as much about the story and the moment um, as sort of a way in to the colour, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me one of your uh, favorite stories of a color that's not one of your favorite colors? Yeah, so as you can imagine, you know, the colors that I, uh, you know, the book is broken down into chapters like red or yellow or orange or green. And within each um, chapter, each section, it's further broken down into various shades like gamboge or puce or ultramarine. And it was important to me to have um, roughly the same number of mm. hues or pigments in each color chapter. And this was really tricky because um, sometimes there are just loads of p- 
great stories. Um, there were loads of great stories in blue, for example, and, and loads of brilliant red stories. And others were a lot trickier. So um, it was quite tricky to f- make sure the brown chapter had lots of compelling um, <laughs> stories in it. Um, and quite often... Um, shades or uh, pigments that I had kind of earmarked for um, orange or for brown would end up kind of disappearing and actually turning out mm. to um, to be to maybe work better in red or yellow or black or whatever it was so it, it was really tricky uh, right. to get that balance right but that proved an interesting an interesting yeah. challenge for the writing yeah absolutely um, so the the chapter that for me maybe I wouldn't say the most interesting, but was certainly maybe the most eye-opening was the chapter on pink because there's a couple of things that are interesting about pink. One is, as you've mentioned, I think in other places and, and in the book, is that pink is this shade of red that has its own name that like shade of green doesn't really have. But also, I love this part about this distinction between uh, pink now that we sort of see pink for girls and blue for boys, and in the data visualization field, this is like constant discussion about that's such a terrible condescending way to present these two colors but you have this great story about that relationship and about pink in general so i wanted to give you a chance to tell us that story and and also talk about the history of pink a little bit yeah so pink to me was just completely eye-opening and fascinating as a chapter Um, because yes as you you know you, you just pointed out you know we don't have um separate categories for um, pale yellow or pale blue in the English language, but we do have this special category for pale red, we we call it pink. Um, And that's fairly recent phenomenon in in terms of the kind of the history of the English language. But it does give it this kind of special status, you know, pink has a special status in the English language. Um, But the word pink was originally not used for pale red, it was actually initially a kind of dye. And so you could have um, uh, brown pinks or green pinks, but more often than not yellow pinks. Um, And then finally, the word and the colour found each other, uh, probably about 300 uh, years ago. And um, from then on, pink was more often than not associated with boys, if it was associated with a particular uh, gender at all. Um, So you get kind of news reports in the very early 20th century talking about um, blue being for little girls and um, pink being for little boys. And this is, you know, in some ways, if we think about it, it does make sense um, because in the Western tradition, blue was the colour that was most associated with the Virgin Mary. And so because she was seen as, you know, the the um, the archetypal woman, um, it makes sense that pale blue would be the kind of the girly, dainty, pretty colour. Um, while yeah. red, which was very associated with military uniforms, um, was associated um, with men. And because pink was just pale red uh you know that made sense and then suddenly during the course of the 20th century this switches round and how this happens and why this happens and when this happens is kind of tricky to unpick my um Mm -hmm. father you know is in his 90s now he was born in 1925 and pink is his favorite color and he 
you know, he doesn't see anything wrong with that. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't really think about it as being gendered in the way that I think about it. You know, I was born in the 80s right. at the kind of height of um, girly pink and blue for boys. Um, yeah. And so I, that's always quite interesting to me. So, you know, it, it must have been the associations must have been loosening and, and changing over at around about the time my dad was in his childhood um and like i said he has no embarrassment about pink as being his favorite color um it's amazing really like we're talking the mid-20th century when we had this like switch yeah of what we now sort of like just take for granted uh with these sort of baby pink baby blue colors but it's only like you know only been ascribed to those genders for the last 50 or 60 years, which is astounding to me. It is. It's, it's really astonishing. I think it's testament in some ways to how commercially important, I'm trying to think of precisely the right way to say it, but you know, we've got so many products that are now on offer and that are targeted specifically to relatively small groups of people. So rather than right. just you know marketing um, or selling clothes for children, um, we're now marketed specific clothes and toys for boys and specific clothes and, and toys um, for girls. And that, you know, that's really a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, if you go back 150 years, um, you know, children were really just seen as, as little adults and were given, you know, th- there wasn't this kind of fetishization of, of childhood and yeah. boyhood and girlhood in the same way that there is um, today. So it kind of, you can kind of see um, how they wouldn't have necessarily specific colors um, that were really closely associated with them in the same way that we um, do today when we spend a lot more money buying um, objects for, for our children. Right. Um, you've mentioned culture a, a few times, and obviously the boy-girl split is, is part of that. But can you talk a little bit about how colors differ by culture? I know there's a part in here about, I think, part of the Russian language only you know has certain names for certain colors that doesn't exist in the English language. But there's also, you know, the difference perception of, you know, red in English cultures tends to mean bad or negative or stop, whereas in Asian cultures, it's a it's a good thing. So, can you talk a little bit about these various cultures around around mm. color? So, if you if you um, think of all possible color, if you can kind of imagine it as a as a, a spectrum, it's not that surprising that different languages would kind of divvy up the spectrum slightly differently. After all, if you're looking at a spectrum in sort of fine detail. The, um, the precise moment where green becomes blue or yellow becomes green could be judged differently by an individual. And so in a way, it's not really that surprising that different languages and different cultures have divvied up the spectrum in different ways. So there are some languages that have um, more words for, for colours, and there are some languages that have far fewer. That isn't to say they can't see the same colours or that colours are less important if they have fewer names for them. It just means that they express um, colours in a different way. Um, as you say, uh, in, in, in Russian, there are two different words for blue. There's kind of a, a word for dark blue and there's a word for pale blue. And similarly, in Korean, um, pale um, sort of greenish yellow is its own distinct category in the same way that pink is in the English language. So, um, so yeah, it's quite interesting that different languages, you know, divide the spectrum in different ways. And then building on from that, 
different languages and, and cultures have different associations. So while in in the English language and you know in Western culture, purple is really very often associated with royalty um, because mm-hmm. there was a, a very famous purple dye that was incredibly expensive and that was made out of um, as, as type of, of mollusk that was found in the Mediterranean. It's native to the Mediterranean. If you look at, at China, if you were to ask um, someone from China even today, but you know, particularly in, in the past, going back you know, a few hundred years, what colour was associated with um, royalty and, and power, they would probably say yellow because there was a, a particular yellow dye that was the you know the preserve of um you know imperial the imperial family in china so you kind of get these little um streams of color association and color thought that are really distinct and are very firmly held um, but also art can change over time you know in the same way that blue and um, pink have kind of switched over in the west um, you know colors and, and colors are kind of moving targets in a way that their associations can shift quite dramatically over time and in different cultures for different reasons um, so you know things like um, traffic lights um, you know they're, they're a fairly recent phenomenon you know and it's kind of quite arbitrary in some way that that, that red and and amber and, and green um, mean what they mean in the West. And it's kind of only really because of trains and then cars that we've got these very firm associations. And yet now they're so firmly embedded um, that red is stop right. and green is go that we can't quite imagine how it could ever be anything else. Um, yeah, But yeah. this is quite arbitrary in a way. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You mentioned the creation of the purple dye, which was the, the other uh, thing I wanted to ask you about, which is a lot of the book focuses on the making of these colors. Um, and I never really thought about that, you know, especially in like a, a digital age, we just, you know, we type in an RGB code and the color is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of these uh, stories are are pretty amazing of these snails and these mollusks who are being dredged up by the, I don't know, it sounds like millions of pounds to create some of these colors. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we're so lucky in a way today. We can go into any clothes shop or any um, art material store, and we've just got such ready access to really stable bright pigments and like you say we can conjure them up on a screen without any effort at all Um, but going back you know really not that um, long ago um, the effort that people had to go through in order to access bright stable colors was really you know just incredible and also great testament to the importance that humans have always placed on colour. And I think one of the best examples of this is this kind of um, imperial purple that was made uh, using um, the liquid that is naturally secreted from one particular gland in uh, two different types of sea snail um, that are native to the Mediterranean. And these snails uh, would have to be caught and, and then they would have to be kind of crushed down. And, um, you know, to, in order to make this purple colour uh, stick to cloth, um, the uh, sort of 
crushed mollusks would have to be soaked in with the cloth in stale urine um, for the ammonia content for up to 10 days. And this was horrifically stinky. You know, you've got the rotting shellfish, you've got the stale urine, and you can find <laughs> the remains of these um, dye works. You know, archaeologists have found kind of, you know, huge dye works on the Mediterranean coast. And they're very often sort of situated downwind from, um, you know, from, from places where people live, you know, for very good reason. Um, but, you know, this was the source of the world's most famous and most beloved dye to think that it had such revolting origins. And yet the final finished yeah. product, you know, was just redolent of power uh, is quite incredible. Yeah. Like someone had to do that the first yeah. time. Like there had to be someone who said, oh, if we do this, put A and B together, we get this purple dye. Yeah, that's I mean, a- it, it begs belief as to how that first happened. <laughs> it really <laughs> but does. somehow it, it really did. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was um, now that you had written this column for a while, now you have this book and, um, and I want to talk about your, your new book as well. But um, I would guess that you go through life focusing on, on different colors. And so I was I just finished um, this Netflix show, The Last Kingdom, which is uh, based in, in ninth century England. After reading the book and watching the last few episodes, I'm looking at the colors that the, you know, the, the designers of the show have chosen. I'm thinking, are these colors right? When you watch shows, when you go around the world, are you thinking, well, that's not the color would have actually been at that mm. time? So I'm definitely really conscious of colors and color stories. And, and actually one of the most magical things about writing a book is that people, you know, get in touch from all over the world to say, oh, I love color too. And did you know this color story? Or, you know, my grandmother told me this about a particular dye that used to be made, you know. Uh, so I, I love getting that kind of information because it is very often very specific to a particular culture and that is just fascinating to me obviously I'm you know born and and bred in London and this is where I grew up and I'm very kind of situated in a in a western context and so that's Mm. what I have most ready access to and so when people tell me color facts from other places I love it I'm a complete geek in this in in that way but I would say that I'm probably not very fussy about uh looking at period dramas you know I studied historical fashion at university you know, and if I went around expecting everything to be accurate, you know, I'd have driven myself mad long ago. Right. Um, right. <laughs> I think, you know, because I sort of see so much of colour as being cultural and shifting, I'm well aware of the fact that our idea of what it means to look Victorian or um, our idea of, of what anything should be is very often very different from the reality. You know, if you look now at 1930s films that were meant to represent you know, ancient Egypt, for example, you know, you know instantly that they are 1930s films. Um, And in the same way today, that when we produce depictions of uh, early Britain or whatever it is, they are still recognisably of our time. You know, even if we tried to be as as authentic as possible, we'd still make mistakes because we our eyes are tuned in 
to our own contexts. Um, and so everything mm-hmm. from the makeup to the clothes, we'd add our own contemporary spin. Um, and that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. We have to accept that. We have to accept a certain level. And we also have to accept that the ideas of the audience um, figure into that. They don't want to be distracted um, by things being 100% accurate, even if you know if that meant that all the women had hairy sure. legs or hairy underarms or whatever else it was. You know, <laughs> the, the people just want to... Um, dive into the story and be convinced by it um, and not be having a hundred other things going on in their in their mind thinking about things being entirely accurate right um okay so you have a new book that's out in the uk but it's not in the states yet comes out i think uh in the the fall of this year yeah the golden thread now i'm totally disappointed i can't (laughs) I can't get the golden thread. Well, I've already I said. You, or I have to get you, over there. Yeah, over you have to relocate yeah. to London. It's the, it's the only way forward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, it is coming out in America uh, in the autumn, in the fall. Um, and it sort of does something similar um, to The Secret Lives of Colour, but with fabric. And rather than telling 75 different stories, as is the case with The Secret Lives of Colour, the golden thread tells 13 um, different stories about fabric right back to the very earliest fibres that we know human beings ever touched, um, going right up uh, through um, Viking woolen sails and uh, lace makers of the uh, 17th century and looking at the Apollo 11 spacesuits and explorers of the Golden Age and also the makings of spider silk garments, both using spiders Mm. themselves and also the attempts that are being made at the moment to kind of make spider silk synthetically using genetically modified yeasts and bacteria. Wow. Okay, good. Because I don't like spiders, so I couldn't wear actual spiders. <laughs> yeah. For the, re- for the research, great. I had to go to London Zoo and the zookeepers insisted on making me stand for a photograph with this huge spider. And I'm not I'm quite frightened of spiders. And there's this horrible photograph on my iPhone of me with about 20 chins and you can't even see the spider. (laughs) Yeah, that would, that, that's one of those things where it's not a joy to write a book where you have to do (laughs) something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this is great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, this is great. The book is great. And, um, I look forward to being able to get your new book when it uh, makes its way over here. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was really fun to chat with Cassia and learn all about color. Um, I do recommend you pick up the book. It was really just a really fun read. Uh, and I think I hope that uh, came through uh, in the interview. Um, as I've mentioned before, if you'd like to support the show, uh, please consider reviewing the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or if you want to do a little bit more, consider becoming a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as three bucks a month. You can help me cover costs of transcription and audio editing and all the stuff that needs to happen to uh, put the show on. But if you don't want to do those, that's fine. Just keep tuning in every week and, uh, and listen to the show and support the show in that way. So again, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.